Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In the early 1980s, a cowboy from Tulsa, Oklahoma, moved to the big city of Chicago to refine his boxing skills and to compete for a heavyweight championship. James Quick Tillis was his name. He was six foot two. He weighed 210 pounds. His nickname came from his lightning fast jab. Well, Tillis tells the story of getting off the bus, carrying his two cheap suitcases past the Sears Tower into downtown Chicago. Proud of himself and his decision to follow his dreams, Tillis set his suitcases down on the sidewalk. He looked up at the giant tower and he boasted to himself, I am going to conquer Chicago. But when James reached back down to pick up his suitcases, they were gone. They had been stolen right out from under him. The moral of the story is that sometimes pride can get a person into trouble. Yet there are actually two types of pride. There is this bad kind of pride, but there's also a good kind of pride. Self-centered pride shines the spotlight on me, my attributes, my achievements, my ambitions. But there is a noble kind of pride. The beaming face of a young dad cradling in his arms his newborn son, admiring this special gift from God, that's a good pride. Or a young lady, giddy over her engagement, showing off her diamond, the token of her fiancé's love. Or a parent watching a child walking the aisle to receive a diploma. Those parents feeling a mixture of gratitude to God and satisfaction of a job well done. That's a good kind of pride too. There are healthy and rewarding kinds of pride. If you've been to the doctor lately, you know that there are two types of cholesterol. There's the good kind of cholesterol, the high density, the HDL, but then there's also the bad, clogging kind of cholesterol, the low density, the LDL. The LDL is gooey and sticky and clings to the walls of your arteries and hinders the flow of blood. Whereas the HDL is solid and firm and flows through the bloodstream, keeping the pathways clear. And likewise, there is a pernicious kind of pride that sticks to a person's spiritual arteries, that hinders the flow of God's blessing, cuts off the joy that God wants to bring to that person's life. There is a bad kind of pride, but there's also a proper kind of pride. This is what... What re, the pride that rejoices in what God is doing, that savors His grace and redirects the glory to God. In fact, a proper kind of pride can actually accentuate God's work. And here in these two verses, Paul exhibits the proper kind of pride. He is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is high-density pride. Paul never blushed or backed down when it came to sharing the gospel. 
His love for and his loyalty to the gospel was unfettered. Paul was honored to have been entrusted with such glorious news. He wore the gospel as a lapel, uh, on the lapel of his life as a badge of honor, as a medal, perhaps. To Paul, the gospel was more a source of pride than a master's green jacket or an Olympic gold medal or even a World Series ring. Paul boasted in the message of the gospel. You remember all that Paul experienced. He was forced to sneak out of Damascus, stoned and left for dead in Lystra, stripped and beaten in Philippi, stalked and chased out of Thessalonica. He was snickered at in Athens and scorned in Greece. And he was stirred up a riot there in the town of Ephesus. And he was nearly strangled in Jerusalem. Because of the gospel, Paul suffered physical pain and false accusations and emotional turmoil and spiritual heartache and social isolation and public humiliation. And yet nothing dampened his enthusiasm for the gospel. Paul was proud of the message that had cost him so much. He gloried in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Keep in mind, Paul was more than just a persuasive salesman. He was also a satisfied customer. He had experienced firsthand the effects of the gospel. You remember at one time he had been a Jewish rabbi who hated all things Jesus. Paul was a killer of Christians and had taken his show on the road when the message of the gospel came to Paul in a shining light. It blinded him physically and opened his eyes spiritually. On the road to Damascus, Paul was introduced to the road to heaven. In light of the gospel, all the rabbis' well-reasoned religion was suddenly reduced to straw. The self-righteousness that he had taken so seriously was reduced to spiritual slapstick. The gospel cleared away the objections that had kept Paul from considering God's son, Jesus. Today, our road intersects with Paul's. I want to speak to you about the message that changed Paul's life and that he couldn't stop sharing with other people. Last year, I turned 60 years old, and it's really been a big deal, much bigger than I thought. That number causes some self-evaluation. Life is a gift that won't last forever. And I've been thinking, what should be my priorities with the time I've got left? I mean, this world that we face is so full of challenges. You know, the need for clean water, poverty and famine, deadly viruses, human trafficking, safe energy, women's rights, illiteracy, etc., etc., etc. The list goes on. Yet I have concluded that there is nothing more deserving of mine and your efforts than the spread of the gospel. The truth of Jesus has the potential to do the greatest good for the most people. Think of it. When a sinner reconciles to his or her creator, a soul gets rescued for eternity. Heaven is further populated. What could be more important than that? Not too long ago, I went to the doctor and was told that I had too much of the wrong kind of cholesterol and too little of the right kind of cholesterol. And I'm afraid that's the same diagnosis that probably fits many of you here today. It certainly fits our spiritual condition. For too many of us, the problem is that we have too much of the wrong kind of pride 
and too little of the right kind of pride. In fact, let me shock you this morning. You've probably never had a pastor tell you this, but many of you are not proud enough. Yes, you might possess some self-centered pride, but what you lack is a Christ-centered pride. Hey, are you proud of the gospel? Does it surface in your daily conversations? Are you always on the lookout for opportunities to share it? Do you inflate with holy pride when you consider the wonders of the gospel? I hope you do. The problem, though, is that too many of us succumb to our fears. And we cower away from modern society's objections. And we shrink at the devil's intimidation because we're not proud enough of the gospel. Every Christian needs the right kind of pride. Former chaplain of the United States Senate, Lloyd John Ogilvie, he once said that the average Christian today suffers from what he calls reverse hypocrisy. Ogilvie explains the term. This is not the hypocrisy of trying to be more than we are. It is the hypocrisy of trying to be less than we are. Hypocrites of the old order paraded their faith before men, while hypocrites of the new order denied their faith before men. We are so sensitive to being placed in a category, so aware of the criticism and ridicule of our contemporaries, that we refuse to talk about the central hope of our lives. In other words, we believe the gospel. We've been changed by the gospel. But are we ashamed or fearful to share it? Hey, are we proud of the gospel? I'm telling you, if Paul were wearing a sport coat when he wrote verses 16 and 17 here in Romans chapter 1, he would have popped a few buttons. He was proud of the gospel. And in these two verses, he answers four questions about the gospel that I want us to tackle this morning. First, why it restores. Second, who it reaches. Third, when it registers. And then fourth, what it reveals. First, why it restores. How can the gospel restore the broken, fractured, divided relationship that exists between God and man and man and his fellow man? The word gospel means good news. But the good news starts with some bad news. For the reason people are out of touch with God and need to be reconciled to God is that sin has created a rift in that relationship. We've gone our own way. We've done our own thing. Imagine twisting or crushing a coaxial cable. Do that and don't be surprised when your television gets bad reception. Contort that wire in ways that it was never intended by the manufacturer and you'll eventually get disconnected. And you see, this is what our sin has done. God created us for His purposes, to live in ways designed by Him. Thus, to violate His will causes a disconnect that God has to repair. See, this is the bad news. We've sinned and we need help. But the gospel is the good news. For the gospel is the way that God restores the connection. The gospel applied becomes new wiring. The gospel reattaches man to God and man to his fellow man. 
It gets the current of God's spirit and life and love and joy and strength flowing again. The world we live in is suffering a massive blackout. The gospel is the only way to turn the lights back on. As Paul says, it is the power of God to salvation. Paul sums up the good news of the gospel in one short, succinct statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There he says, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. And here he defines it. That Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again the third day. I've heard it put, the gospel is neither a discussion or a debate, but an announcement. And it's true. Here was Paul's proclamation. Jesus was crucified and buried and raised from the dead on the third day. Paul has good news for us. God is not angry with us. That none of us need to hide from God. He loves us and he wants to forgive us. And through Christ's death and resurrection, he has made a way to do just that. The gospel is not a philosophical idea or a mystical theory or a moral code. It is an announcement of a set of facts cemented in the annals of history. Paul recognized that the work of Jesus, his death and resurrection, was the power of God to salvation. The Greek word translated power is dunamis, from which we get our words dynamic or dynamite. The simple truth of the gospel is a capsule which contains awesome, unharnessed, supernatural power. You could say that gospel is an extra strength pain reliever. You swallow it. You absorb it. And it'll grip your will. And it'll renew your mind. And it'll ease your conscience. And it'll warm your heart and save your soul and transform your very life. The gospel sobers the drug addict and dries out the drunk. It restores virtue to the prostitute and humbles the stiff-necked hypocrite. The gospel purifies the lips of a liar and makes the perverted man walk straight again. It's been said, the gospel faithfully preached meddles with everything else on earth. And it does. A simple truth is the unbridled, awesome power of God to salvation. And this term salvation is also an interesting word. It means to rescue or to set free. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word was used to describe the liberation of a nation. The Jews were considered saved when they returned from exile in Babylon back to their land. Salvation in the biblical sense is the abolition of slavery. It's the shattering of a people's chains. Salvation is a fresh start, a new beginning, a new year. It results in confetti and celebration in the streets. It's all about joy and freedom and forgiveness. Reminds me of the man whose name accidentally was listed in the obituaries. He called the newspaper to complain. Well, the editor apologized, but the man wasn't satisfied. The newspaper's mistake had caused him some humiliation. Probably it cost him some business as well. Well, finally, the editor said, hey, I'm sorry your name was in the obituaries today. Tomorrow we'll put it under the birth announcements and you can have a whole new start. Don't you wish a new start was that easy? At the time of Paul's writing, people all over the world were looking for salvation. 
People knew that culture was in crisis. Observant men recognized that Rome was facing an ethical and a spiritual disintegration. Sin held the populace in its vice grip. People were drowning in a sea of immorality and emotional despair. Wealthy Romans, those that had it all, they they didn't know how to satisfy themselves. They were known to eat and eat and eat and then go out and purge themselves, just throw up so they could come back and eat more. In fact, the exits in the Roman theater were referred to as vomitoriums. After the show, people would just vomit out. That was the imagery in their minds. Sort of what happens today at one of these all-you-can-eat buffets. It was kind of the ancient version of the Golden Corral. In the world of the first century, neither Greek logic nor Roman law did anything to curtail the awful corruption that had taken hold of the empire. It appeared as if nothing could rescue Rome from its downward spiral. The philosopher Seneca was a contemporary Paul. He taught that all men were looking ad salutum or toward salvation. Seneca himself commented that man's only hope was a hand let down to lift us up. And amazingly, my friends, that is exactly what the gospel provides. A hand let down to lift us up. Hey, Paul was no backwoods preacher. He was no provincial wanderer. He was a cosmopolitan person. He was a cultured man. The apostle had traveled from east to west, from Arabia to Athens, and he had seen the world's problems, same problems that befuddle us today. And Paul was very familiar with all of the proposed solutions, yet he knew there was only one hope, that God had vested his power in only one solution. It's been said, the world has many religions, but only one gospel. Paul was proud of Jesus and his gospel. It alone was the answer for which the world was searching. I love the analogy of the man who fell into a pit. Moses, representing Judaism, he walks by and he says, Hey, if you'd kept my commandments, you wouldn't be in that pit. Buddha walks by and says in typical Buddhist fashion, Hey, if you'll come up here, I'll help you out. Muhammad, the founder of Islam, walks by and warns, If you don't get out of that pit, you'll become my enemy. Finally, Jesus walks by the pit. He sees the hole the man is in. He reaches in and he helps him out. In the illustration, religion dwells on why you fell into the pit. Or that you shouldn't be in the pit. Or that you should get out of the pit or else. But only Jesus cares enough to reach into the pit. And only Jesus has the power to pull you out. This is what he achieved through his death and resurrection. Thus, the gospel alone is the power of God to salvation. There were people in the ancient world that scoffed at the gospel. They mocked, how could the death of an obscure outlaw Jew in Palestine save the world? While excavating the ruins of Rome, archaeologists, they found a mural. It was the blasphemous sketch of a slave bowing before a cross And on the cross, the pagan painter had hung a jackass. The caption at the bottom of the drawing read, Alexomenos worships his God. 
Another pompous Roman, a philosopher named Celsus, wrote in the late 2nd century, If any man is ignorant, if any is lacking in sense and culture, if any is a fool, let him come boldly to Christianity. And yet Paul wasn't discouraged or intimidated by these insults. For he knew this would happen. He understood that God had deliberately chosen to redeem the world in a way that would challenge the world's wisdom and values. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul explains God's method. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. For it pleased God through the foolishness of the message to save those who believe. God used what the Greeks and Romans interpreted as a defeat to mock the world system. It was the ultimate irony. One man's death and a bloody, brutal, barbaric one at that brought salvation to all men. For the sophisticated Greek, unwilling to humble his intellect, clinging to his own logic, this was too much for him to stomach. For the Roman, who admired conquering generals, why would God use a victim of crucifixion? God was deliberately throwing the world a curveball. To the Jews, the cross looked foolish. Or to the Greeks, it looked foolish. And to the Romans, it was weakness. But to the believing heart, Jesus is God's wisdom and God's power. And in choosing the cross as a means of salvation, God made sure the first step toward our receiving it was stepping over our own pride. This ensured that only people with simple faith in an open mind, in a repentant heart, would come to Jesus. Realize sometimes things are not what they seem. In high school, I knew a guy who drove this modest, unassuming, unsuspecting-looking sedan. No vented hood, no wide tires, no hot rod kind of stuff, no dual exhaust. He'd roll up to an intersection next to a souped-up muscle car, and he'd just bait the other guy. The driver and the passengers would laugh at him. They would mock him until the light turned. They didn't realize that under my friend's hood was the baddest engine in Gwinnett County. (laughs) Nobody could outrun him. But you never knew it until the pedal hit the metal. And this is why I'm pleading with you today. Please don't misjudge the gospel. Don't think, oh, this won't work for me. I need something more than this. I'm looking for something else. No, Paul was proud of the gospel because he knew what was under the hood. Compared to the ornate temples of Roman idols, the cross was unimpressive. The bread and the wine looked meager compared to the lavish ceremonies of the pagans. Yet Paul wasn't intimidated. He knew what was under the hood of the gospel. When the pedal hit the metal at crunch time, man, the gospel of Jesus blew them all away. It was powerful. That's why the gospel restores. It is the power of God unto salvation. But notice, too, who it reaches. This, too, made Paul proud of the gospel. He says, it is the power of God to everyone who believes. The gospel is for everyone, for young and old, for rich and poor, for black and white. The gospel is for you. You know, I really have a tough time 
buying clothes for my wife. Maybe some of you guys can relate. If I buy too small, she thinks that I think that she should be smaller and that I'm sending her some kind of subliminal message. If I buy clothes too big for her, she thinks I think she looks fat and I wish she was skinnier. The problem is she thinks more than I think. I'm just trying to buy some pretty clothes for the girl. But this has gotten so dangerous for me that over the years, I've just stopped purchasing clothes from my wife altogether. Unless I see that tag (laughs) with those magical words, one size fits all. See that one size fits all and you can't go wrong. And when you look closely at the tag on the gospel, you'll see those same words. One size fits all. The same gospel is suited for the college professor and for the high school dropout. It fits just as well for the emotional as it does the intellectual. It works equally well for the child as for the adult, for the man as for the woman. The same gospel works regardless of your circumstances or culture or climate. It's exactly what the factory worker in Russia needs and the natives in Australia need. And the barkeeper in Ireland needs. And the rabbi in Israel needs. And the housewife in Atlanta needs. It doesn't matter your IQ, your language, your background, your appearance, your diet, your taste in music. Even your college football team preference. The gospel is for you. I'll never forget the night when my five-year-old daughter knelt in the office at my house with tears running down her face, and was changed by the gospel. Never forget it. And it was the exact same gospel that transformed the life of a 50-year-old truck driver that I once led to Christ while we were sitting on top of a tractor trailer at work. The same gospel. The gospel is what the boss needs. It's what the neighbor needs. It's what your friend needs. It's what the teenager needs. The gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. And there's a third question that Paul answers here. When does it register? At what moment does the gospel take effect in a person's life? What is required for the gospel to be received? And again, notice God's love of simplicity. It's for everyone who does what? Who believes. All it takes is faith. Just a moment of belief. In the movie, we bought a zoo. Matt Damon, he plays a bereaved husband who quits his job. He takes his kids and he buys an 18-acre rundown wildlife park. Well, he wants to do something memorable with his kids. And so their zoo becomes the adventure that bonds the family together. Well, at one point in the movie, Damon gets asked why he did it. And I love his reply. He says, sometimes... All you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. Just literally 20 seconds of embarrassing bravery. And I promise you, something great will come of it. Imagine, 20 seconds, just 20 seconds of insane courage can transform your life. But this is true of the gospel. It doesn't take years of labor or days of introspection or hours of struggle. All it takes to receive the gospel is for you to hear it and for you allow it to excite your heart 
and believe that it'll do what it promises and then embrace it for yourself. Just 20 seconds of embarrassing bravery and it can happen. You can receive the gospel. It's sad how people in churches today have complicated the gospel. Rather than good news, simple news, some churches preach good wishes. Oh, you got to think positively and visualize the new you you can be and have faith in your faith and all the rest of it. Other churches preach good wisdom. Well, once we get you into a support group where you can talk about life, when you can become accountable, and once you find that how-to book on the subject and all the rest of it, still other churches preach good works. Work the 12 steps, man. Follow those seven life principles. Find the formula, man. It's, it's all about the formula. That's the ticket. No, it's not. The gospel isn't good wishes or good wisdom or good works. It's good news. The gospel isn't self-help. It's Christ's help. And it is the power of God unto salvation. What Paul preached was not a principle or a philosophy, but a person who died in our place and rose from the dead. And i got to tell you, if you've got a technique or a formula, or a 12-step program, and you can take Jesus out of it without affecting, altering its effectiveness, you might have good advice, but you don't have the good news. The good news is God's one-step approach. Jesus did it all. It's all finished now. What we need to do is trust or believe in Him. Christianity is not a way to behave. It's a fact to believe. When it comes to our forgiveness, all that needed to be done has already been done on the cross. And now if we ask Him, God will forgive our sins and He'll fill our heart with His power and His peace and His presence. A friend of mine once walked into a kingdom hall, just had a wild hair and decided to go right into the kingdom hall with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, after the meeting, everyone approached him, of course, and tried to indoctrinate him into the Jehovah's Witness doctrine. Well, he had one question for them. He said, if I had just one hour to live, what must I do to be saved? Well, they mumbled for a while, but they never gave him a straight answer. For one hour didn't give him long enough to go through their indoctrination or to peddle their magazines. There was no time for him to earn his way into their kingdom. And thus the Jehovah's Witness offered him no hope. See, that is not the gospel. Seconds before he died, the thief on the cross put his faith in Jesus. In 20 seconds of insane courage and embarrassing bravery, he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, today you will be with me in paradise. That's salvation. That's the gospel. It doesn't take six months orientation or a months-long probation or a week-long memorization or a 10 days indoctrination. Man, all you need is a heart of faith. Ephesians 2 verse 9 settles it. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Well, finally, Paul expounds on one more truth about the gospel, what it reveals. Verse 17 tells us that the Christian gospel reveals the righteousness of God. This is a key word in Paul's letter to the Romans. It occurs 35 times in this one book. In a narrow sense, righteousness means conformity to what's right. 
It's the combining of purity and goodness and justice and kindness. A righteous person does what's right in every situation. And yet, in a broader way, this word mean, or this word righteousness means a right standing with God. And in that sense, righteousness should be the bottom line in all religion. You see, all religion is about gaining and maintaining a right standing with God. If a religion can't resolve the issue of sin, if it can't obtain for you God's pardon, if it can't produce some goodness in you, then it's worthless. Yet the mistake of all religions except Christianity is assuming that the righteous person is the one who somehow makes himself righteous. That's not real righteousness. That's not how the righteousness of God gets revealed. Here Paul quotes Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. The just shall live by faith. You see, the man or woman who enjoys living in a right standing with God didn't get there by being righteous themselves. It took faith. That's how they got there. That's how righteousness was revealed. You don't have to grind out goodness to earn your way to God, to prove you deserve His blessing. Try that tactic and you'll never measure up. Salvation is not what you can achieve, it's what you believe. Martin Luther once said, if salvation could be attained only by working hard, then surely horses and donkeys would be in heaven. Just not any humans. How is a man made right with God and how does he stay right with God? The answer is a life of faith. The just shall live by faith. Speaking of Martin Luther, he discovered this truth while on a pilgrimage to Rome. In Rome, there is a cathedral containing a famous staircase. Supposedly, the stairs were from Pilate's judgment hall in Jerusalem. Legend has it that the staircase was dismantled and brought to Rome from Jerusalem during the period of the Crusades. Even today, remorseful sinners, they come to Rome from all over the world, and they climb this staircase on their knees, stopping on each step to pray. The stones are hard on a person's knees. This ordeal was the penance that Luther felt was necessary to make himself a righteous man. And yet halfway up the staircase, suddenly this verse, Romans chapter 1 verse 17, penetrated Luther's thoughts. It hit him. The just man doesn't make himself just. He receives that status by faith. Luther rose up from his knees returned, went back to Germany, a free and forgiven man. He was transformed. He wrote of his experience later, when by the Spirit of God I understood those words, the just shall live by faith, I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. The gospel of Christ is more than good wishes or good wisdom or good works. It is the good news. And it can change the hardest man. It can change change the most jaded woman. It is the most powerful change agent on earth. And it is what this needy world desperately needs most. For each of us, the gospel is just 20 seconds of embarrassing bravery. But it can change our life. It can impact a family or a nation. And it can alter an eternal destiny. And so I ask you, are you proud of the gospel? Are you proud enough to let it have its effect in your life? 
Are you proud enough to proclaim it to others? Jesus was not ashamed to go to the cross for you. Let's not be ashamed to share the gospel with others. And if you haven't yet received the gospel, then I hope your 20 seconds will be today. I hope you'll exercise your faith and you'll trust in Jesus. You'll believe in the gospel before you leave this morning.